All right. How's everyone doing? We good? Okay. Michelle, do you have my, my screen up there? Yes, Captain, you're up and ready to go. Thank you. I'm bleeding, is that where you wanna be? Uh, stop the bleeding. From your eyes? Oh God, yes. Let me just set up my uh, stuff. Cool. All right, let me make this bigger. There we go. And um, Captain, do we have any business to deal with before we uh, start just uh, getting into this? Um, well, let's see. Well, the grades have been posted for a test two and quizzes are up to date. So that's good. Um, we will have, we will have quiz seven on, uh, on Thursday. Okay. And we will do that the same way we did last time, correct? Which is the, we'll start that at seven. You'll have the, are we going 40 minutes now? No. Okay. I just know you gave them 10 extra minutes on the test. So I didn't know if that was changing. Nope. We're not giving, I'm not, I gave All right, them so 30 minutes. minutes and class will start at seven 30. Indeed. All right. And then we'll move forward from there. All right. Have fun, everyone. All righty. How's everyone doing? We good? Everyone social distancing? It's not nearly as much fun as the alternative. All right. So we've been talking about shock. We talked a bit about mechanism of injury. And since most of shock that we see, the most common type of shock or source of shock that we see, is hypovolemic shock, and that cause is caused, of course, by bleeding. So we're going to talk a little bit about bleeding, what happens, and how it can be mitigated. When we talk about external bleeding or bleeding in general, we're really talking about the systemic circulation. So we're talking about the blood that's leaving the left side of the heart and heading to the rest of the body. We're not really that concerned with the pulmonary circuit when we're talking about bleeding. So the arteries, if you remember, arteries go away from the heart, away, away from the heart. Because you're going from a large blood vessel to smaller and smaller blood vessels, it's a high pressure system. In addition, you've got that miraculous pump that is your heart pushing blood around. So again, high pressure. This is the blood that has returned from your lungs and is now going to um, perfuse your body tissue. So this is your oxygenated blood. So you have your arteries. Those branch off into smaller arteries. Those branch off into still smaller arteries until we get into arterioles. Bear in mind that the blood vessels on this side at this point, the arterial system, are fairly muscular. 
If you remember, we talked about them having three layers, the inner layer, nice and smooth, the middle layer, the medians being the muscular layer, and the outer layer being more of a, um, a, a connective tissue, elastic material. So this is vessels that are designed to withstand this pressure. At some point, the blood vessels are going to branch off into the smallest of blood vessels, known as capillaries. And we know that the capillaries are one cell thick, essentially, and that's what's going to allow that miracle that is gas exchange to go back and forth. So now the oxygenated blood is leaving your heart, going to your tissue, makes its way to the arterioles and the capillaries, the oxygen leaves the blood in the capillaries and goes into your cells. The carbon dioxide leaves the cells and goes into the capillaries. And now we start on our way back. Heading back to the heart, the capillaries merge to form venules. The venules merge to form veins. This is the low pressure side of the circuit, partly because we're going from small vessel to large and larger vessel. And when you do that, there really is no pressure in the system to propel stuff. So as a result, this is low pressure. This is also carrying deoxygenated blood because it's coming from the cells. If you recall, we said part of the way the blood gets back to your heart from your veins is by muscle contraction. So walking around helps push that blood out from your lower extremities toward the heart. And that's really how we push that blood up to the heart, along with the heart pushing blood through those capillaries. Any questions about the circulatory system? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about bleeding. We're going to start our discussion with external bleeding. And obviously, not all bleeding is created equal. Some bleed, obviously, some bleeding is worse than others. So how do we figure out what is a significant hemorrhage? Hemorrhage is just a fancy word for bleed. Well, we have to have an understanding of how much blood we actually have. When you talk about blood volume, blood volume is weight dependent. Adults have about 70 cc's of blood per kilogram. Now, in order to make the math easy, I mention or I reference a 220 pound patient. 220 pounds works out to 100 kilos. So if I weigh 100 kilos, and I have 70 cc's of blood per kilo, that gives me 7,000 cc's, which is seven liters. The average adult has between six to seven liters. Yes, I know. Your book mentions the average adult weighs 150 pounds. I don't know where these people are getting their patients. I really don't. Our average patient weighs between 200 and 250. So if you're talking about a 110 pound child, 
they're going to have about half your blood half the blood volume of an adult. Stands to reason. Infants and young children, and by young children we mean kids pretty much under the age of eight, have a slightly higher amount of blood per kilo, 80 cc's per kilo. So if you're talking about a 22 pound infant, 22 pounds is about 10 kilos, 10 kilograms. And that means they're going to have about 800 milliliters of blood. The reason why this becomes important is the amount of blood that I can tolerate could very well bleed an infant dry. So when you see a puddle of blood on the floor, think in terms of what that means given the size of your patient, okay? So what are some factors that will affect the severity of this hemorrhage or the result? Well, an eye for the obvious, obviously the amount of blood lost. 15% blood volume loss is enough to start you down the road to shock, okay? So if you stop to think about it, 15% is not all that much. I mean, 15% times 70, that's about a, uh, what, a thousand cc's, right? So not a whole lot. So if you lose 15% of your blood volume, you could get into trouble. Um, it's not just how much you lose, but rather how quickly you lose it. So for instance, while 15% of my blood volume, 15% of my loss, um, will get me in trouble, start me toward shock. If I lose 10% in 10 minutes of very sudden blood loss, that could put me into shock. So for someone who weighs 220 pounds, 10% is about 700 cc's. And again, that's going to bleed an infant dry, okay? To give you some perspective, when you go to give blood at the local vampire outlet, when they draw blood off, they draw off a pint, which is about 450 to 500 cc's. And they do that over the space of about 20, 30 minutes. And when you're done, they make you stay put, have a glass of orange juice and eat those awful cookies. So they recognize that even just one unit of blood, one pint, 500 cc's, is going to make you feel woozy. So if I double that, in 10 minutes, you can imagine what, how I'm going to react to that, okay? So the amount you lose, the rate of loss, in addition, any other injuries or conditions, situational conditions, for instance, that um, might impact your, situ your condition. So for instance, hypothermia. Hypothermia reduces your clotting mechanism. It decreases 
the efficiency of your clotting mechanism. So if you have a patient who's been bleeding and they're hypothermic, that's going to cause them to bleed more. It affects their clotting mechanism. Head injury. Someone who has a head injury, okay, um, cannot tolerate blood loss because it, 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 it exacerbates, it, it increases the effect of their brain injury, their head injury. If I have respiratory compromise and I'm losing red blood cells, and in addition to that, I'm having a tough time with gas exchange, then that's going to get me into trouble. That's going to increase the severity of my condition. In addition, pre-existing medical problems, patients that have extensive medical histories like cardiac disease, respiratory disease, don't compensate for blood loss very well. Another example is someone who's anticoagulated. I have a history of atrial fibrillation. My doctor has given me an anticoagulant and I fall and I hit my head or I, I, I fall and I cut myself and now I'm bleeding and it won't stop. So again, this is stuff that we wanna be aware of because it helps us plan on how we're going to manage our patient. And last, age. The very young and the elderly do not compensate for blood loss very well for very long, for different reasons. The very young, because they have less blood volume to lose, so they have less to spare. They use their vasculature to compensate, and then their blood pressure suddenly drops and they get into trouble. The elderly have a lot of other comorbidities, other medical problems that compromise their ability to compensate for blood loss. So these are patients that are gonna get into trouble. Questions about severity so far? Nope. What coagulated means, like there's a question, what does coagulated mean in simple terms? Coagulation means clotting. Anticoagulated means you've been given medicine that will prohibit or inhibit your coagulating. Okay, so that's what anticoagulated means. All right, so other issues. When we talk about how severe bleeding can, can be, and we mentioned volume loss is one of the significant mechanisms, one of the significant predictors. We divide bleeding up into four classes. Class one hemorrhage or class one bleeding means you've lost less than 15% of your blood volume. Up to 15%, your body is going to do a really good job of compensating for it, okay? Less than 15%, you're gonna get that epinephrine dump, that catecholamine dump. You're gonna get a little tachycardia. You're gonna get a little vasoconstriction. And that's gonna do wonders. That's gonna help you maintain your blood pressure and maintain your perfusion. So less than 15% blood volume loss, class one hemorrhage, you're compensating just fine. 
class two gets us to 15 to 30% blood loss. Once you lose greater than 15%, now your compensatory mechanisms have to kick into overdrive. So yeah, instead of having a tachycardia between 100 and 116, you're now tacking away 116, 120. Your vasoconstriction is going full bore. So now you're really kind of clamping down a bit. So now you're going to get pale, cool, a little bit sweaty. Because the blood vessels are narrowing, that's going to increase the resistance in the system. Okay. And that means that that's going to elevate your diastolic pressure a little bit. It may also elevate your systolic in an effort to keep your blood pressure up. And we see a little narrowing of the pulse pressure during this phase. And now you're tachypnic because you're trying to take in more O2. And because you've lost about 15 to 30% of your blood volume, you don't have as many red blood cells to transport oxygen. You're shifting to anaerobic metabolism a little bit, producing lactic acid, and now you're trying to blow off carbon dioxide to fix the acidosis. Well, if you've got type one and type two, it stands to reason we got type three. Type three is between 30 and 40% blood volume loss. At this point, your compensatory mechanisms are becoming overwhelmed. You're still gonna get that epinephrine dump. We're still gonna try to maintain our blood pressure. We're fighting this, we're doing our best. The tachycardia increases, pale, cool, clammy, tachypnea. But now, because you've lost so much volume, those measures aren't working and your blood pressure is dropping. Hypotension is a late sign of shock, right? So late sign of hypovolemic shock. And here we are, we're right at the late decompensated shock. But it can get worse. If you lose greater than 40% of your blood volume, you're now in class four hemorrhage. And this is where we start seeing end organ failure. You don't have enough blood volume in your system. You don't have enough blood pressure in your system to perfuse your kidneys and your liver. So those organs begin to shut down. You don't have enough pressure or blood to perfuse your brain. So now you start having profound altered mental status, unconsciousness. And these patients will tacky, will go up, or they may brady down, depending upon their age. Children tend to brady down. And also, the end organ perfusion. If my brain's not getting perfused, my brain's going to be very confused. Questions about class one, two, three, four hemorrhage. You do have a question there, Captain. All right. Go ahead, Ms. Kane. So for um, class two, you said the increased tachycardia was 
116 to 120? Roughly. So, roughly. Okay. Yep. So what, what, can you just give an example of what they'll be for class three and class four so I can write them down? So don't marry the numbers, right? There's no rule that says this is it. Class one, you start getting tachycardic. So maybe your heart rate is between in, in the high 90s into the low 100s. And then as you bleed more, it's going from the low 100s into 116, 120, the low 120s. And then as you go, yes? No, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. And then as you go into class three, it goes even higher. The higher 120s, maybe into 130, okay? Yes. So we're looking for those trends. Okay, so two more questions and that's it. So what does modeled mean? Modeled means that your that your skin looks blotchy. Okay, and then for the external bleeding severity, for these things, this happens a lot with like traumas, like if somebody got shot or if like penetrated, like wound or something like that, like this is when that stuff happens or can this also happen with like, like, I don't know, like strokes and stuff, like bleeding inside the head? You're not going to lose enough blood volume to have these issues inside your head. Oh, okay. But these happen with traumas and stuff, like when somebody gets shots and stuff like that? Yes. Okay. And Miss Kane, before you unmute Exter you. External bleeding. External. Okay. Okay. And Miss Kane, do you, do you understand the coagulated now? Yes. Okay, great. Any other questions? Cool. All righty. So blood volume matters. Um, in addition, when we're talking about dangerous, uh, when we're talking about external bleeding, depending upon which vessels are involved, the characteristics of the bleeding will vary. Because the arterial blood is under pressure, it will tend to spurt. It's going to be bright red because in the systemic circulation, it's oxygenated. And very often while spurting, it'll also pulsate. So every time the heart beats, it'll spurt more. So you'll get this kind of geyser sort of thing. Venous bleeding, because it's under lower pressure, tends to be more of a steady flow and also is darker because it's deoxygenated. Capillary bleeding is more of an oozing. The truth is that if you sustain a significant injury, the likelihood is you're going to have a mix of these, okay? So if someone were to cut their hand, they'd have some venous bleeding. They might have nicked some arterioles, some of the smallest of the arteries, right? Those are really too small to really pulsate and pump. And there's going to be some capillary damage. So you're going to see this mix. But certainly there are times, for instance, if someone gets stabbed in the leg, when an artery, a very large artery, might be cut. And now you're going to see this spur pulsating, spurting of bright red blood. And that's something that you need to manage right away. And then we have these awful depictions of oozing. There's your capillary. 
steady flow, there's your venous bleed. And then the spurting under pressure, your arterial bleed. So questions about the different characteristics of bleeding depending upon what type of vessels are involved. Nope, excellent. So if we do have an external wound, the next question becomes, how do we deal with it? How are we going to manage the bleeding? When you talk about hemorrhage control, the most effective, most common mechanism we use is direct pressure. Now, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Manual pressure works just fine. So if you have a gloved hand, because we're talking about a clinical setting, then just direct pressure right onto that wound is a good place to start. If you have a dressing, throwing a gauze pad on that and direct pressure is a good place to start. If you have other resources, if you have dressings and roller gauze and stuff like that, and you can apply a pressure dressing, then that's great. Manual pressure to start, get your materials, put a dressing on there, wrap it, wrap it, wrap it tight, wrap it tight, wrap it tight, and now you've got a pressure dressing. A pressure dressing is simply a dressing that applies a little bit of pressure against the wound to help it stop bleeding. In addition, if you're talking about an extremity injury, sometimes elevation in conjunction with direct pressure can help. Elevating the limb helps to reduce blood flow into the limb and increase blood flow back to the heart. And now by elevating the limb above the level of the heart and applying direct pressure, we're actually gonna be able to slow bleeding down so that now the clotting mechanism can do its job. Usually direct pressure alone can manage most bleeding, okay? Think in terms of when you cut yourself shaving. You know, it takes some time. It takes three to five minutes for that clotting mechanism to kick in and to start blocking the, the wound. I mean, when you cut yourself shaving and you stick that little piece of tissue there and then you keep ripping it off, all you're doing is ripping the clot off. Give it some time. Question about direct pressure and elevation in conjunction with direct pressure. The question is, will circulation be cut off by your applying to direct pressure? No, it won't. Direct pressure basically slows the flow of blood to the wound site. It's not going to cut off circulation to the rest of the tissue. All you're trying to do is slow the blood flow to the wound site so that you can get that coagulation, that clotting business going, okay? Questions about direct pressure and elevation. All right, there are other things that we can use to help a little bit. 
for instance, applying pressure to a proximal pressure point for an extremity bleed. If you have a wound to an extremity, a leg or an arm, that persists even though you're applying direct pressure, then one of the things that you can do is you can apply pressure to the artery going into that extremity. So all you need to do is apply some pressure to the brachial artery in the arm or the femoral artery in the groin. And what that will do is slow the flow of blood to the wound. It's not gonna stop it. It's going to slow the flow of blood to the wound, which hopefully with the direct pressure will allow clotting to happen, okay? I see some questions. Is this the same as when applying a tourniquet? We're gonna to talk about tourniquets in a minute. This is not the same as applying a tourniquet. A tourniquet is something else. If I cut my finger and I apply direct pressure, this is not a tourniquet. This is direct pressure. Blood is still getting to all the other tissue. I am just clamping down on the blood vessels that are injured, hoping that they will begin to clot, okay? Same thing with the pressure point. You're slowing the flow of blood, reducing the pressure to give clots a chance to form, okay? So we've, got, so we've got direct pressure, we've got elevation with direct pressure, and for extremity injuries, we also have proximal pressure point, which can help. All of you seem very, very concerned about tourniquets, so let's talk about tourniquets. Okay, Captain, you do have one question, though, before you go ahead. Ah, yes, Ms. Okafor. Can you hear me? Now I can. Okay. Um, so I was mainly asking, um, when applying the tourniquet, though, are you still doing that pressure technique that you mentioned, like holding it down? And I didn't know if you could do that simultaneously. Let me talk about tourniquets and we'll find out. Okay. Thank you. So Duarte Smith, you want me to go back? There you go. Are we good, Mr. Duarte Smith? Show me a sign. Yes, we're good. We're good. We're good. I did it. Okay. 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 Tourniquets. Tourniquets are for extremity use only. If your bleeding is not being controlled by direct pressure, you've applied direct pressure and it's not working, or you have an obvious exsanguinating hemorrhage, now you wanna to go to a tourniquet. So if you arrive on scene and you're doing your trauma assessment like we taught you, general impression looking for exsanguinating hemorrhage and you see this guy's leg has been chopped off and it's bleeding, then partner, direct pressure, 
while I get a tourniquet. Apply the tourniquet. Once you apply the tourniquet, you should be able to let go of direct pressure, although I would apply a pressure dressing before I did that. And the reason for that is the way we apply the tourniquet. First, let me say that the application of tourniquets has changed a lot in the last, I'm gonna go with 30 years. When I started and pretty much up through the end of the 20th century, tourniquets were looked at like a last resort, only a last resort, everything else fails, last resort. When you apply a tourniquet, you're gonna to kill tissue. The evidence-based medicine says and has shown us that if you have a dangerous bleed that you cannot control with direct pressure, then tourniquet is where you wanna go, okay? So we don't wait for this to be a last resort. This is something that we're aggressive with. In our agency, we were applying tourniquets for arterial bleeds through, we started in the 80s. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve here. So you're gonna apply the tourniquet. When you apply the tourniquet, placement is going to be based on situation. What do I mean by that? If you have a controlled situation, one patient, it's a safe scene, you've got plenty of hands, you have an opportunity to expose the entire extremity, you see where the injury is. Under those circumstances, we're going to apply the tourniquet as close to the injury as possible, probably about three to four inches above it, okay? And we're going to tighten the tourniquet until arterial blood flow stops. And what that means is no blood is getting past the tourniquet. This is going to hurt the patient, not you, okay? When you apply a tourniquet, it hurts. That's how tight it is. And you'll know that the tourniquet is doing its job when blood flow out of the wound stops and the patient has no distal pulse, okay? So if I've been stabbed in the middle of my thigh and you're putting a tourniquet on my upper thigh, you'll know it's doing its job because the bleeding from my leg has stopped and the pulse in my foot is gone. You have to tighten that tourniquet tight enough to stop the arterial blood flow to the, to the injury. If you've given blood, you've probably had a tourniquet wrapped around your arm so that they can get your veins to pop up. That's not the tourniquet we're talking about. That tourniquet is tight enough to stop venous return to the heart, but it's not tight enough to stop arterial flow into your arm. And that's why your veins pop up because blood can get into your hand, but it can't get out. So now those veins get big and now they can start the IV. If you notice, before they take the catheter out, the needle out rather, they release 
the tourniquet. So that blood can continue flowing into your arm so that you don't bleed a lot from the angiocath. So you, if you apply a tourniquet too loose, you're going to increase bleeding. You have to apply it tight enough to stop the blood flow to the injury and stop the distal pulse, okay? Now, obviously, no, we, generally the question is, do you use this for a venous bleed? And the answer is, you may not know it's an arterial bleed or a venous bleed. You have some very, very large veins in there. So if you have a bleed and you cannot control it with direct pressure, then go to the tourniquet. If they have an arterial bleed, I'm more likely to go to the tourniquet sooner, okay? Another question is, would you take the knife out or leave it in? We're gonna talk about impaled objects a little later on today. We never remove an impaled object. Okay. Does, that, does that answer questions? Yes. Okay. So the, the question is, what determines if bleeding is uncontrolled? You've been using direct pressure for over five minutes. Okay, if, if it's not happening, if it's not working, then you need to start thinking in terms of other strategies. Or you have an arterial pulsating bleed. Under those circumstances, I'm more likely to go to the tourniquet sooner. Okay. All right. So there are a variety of tourniquets out on the market. You can get some commercial tourniquets. Um, there, uh, and I'll show you what those look like. Um, there's a type of tourniquet called a cat tourniquet, which is, was designed initially for the military. And it's actually designed for an individual to apply to themselves with one hand if necessary. Um, you can use a triangular bandage, just a bandage as a tourniquet. I'll show you one of those, rubber tubing. You could use a blood pressure cuff. If you're going to use a blood pressure cuff, then you want to pump the blood, the, the air into the blood pressure cuff 20 points above their systolic blood pressure, and that will stop the blood flow. And then you might need to use improvised stuff. If you are not working at work and you're at home and someone you know cuts a large blood vessel, then you may need to use a belt, you may need to use a towel or something. An ideal improvised tourniquet should be about two to three inches wide. You don't want a narrow band. You want something about two inches wide so that you can compress a lot of those vessels. Okay. Just a word about placement. We never place a tourniquet over a joint. The, the blood vessels, the, the neurovascular bundle in your extremities, when they run through the joint, really are not as compressible as when you're doing it against their tissue, okay? So we're not going to apply um, tourniquets over joints. You can apply it below a joint, you can apply it above a joint, but we're not gonna go over a joint, okay? Questions about that? 
Another type of tourniquet, and then I'll show you what different types look like, is called a junctional tourniquet. There are injuries where the blood vessel is cut so close to the torso that it will retract a little bit, that it will pull back. And if it does, it's too high, it's too far up toward the torso for a traditional tourniquet to help. If that's the case, that's what we call a junctional injury. You see them up toward the armpit and the shoulder or toward the groin. Then you may need to use something called a junctional tourniquet. Now, those are not usually found on ambulances. They are seen in the military and um, in the hospital, but they are out there in some services. The other thing that you can do is you can pack the wound, and we'll talk about wound packing um, a little later on. So what do these tourniquets look like? So this tourniquet here on the very top left-hand side of the screen is called a cat tourniquet. And this is a tourniquet that you can apply on your, on your own. There's a buckle and you just, and it's all Velcro and you open it up, you slide it over the extremity, you tighten it as snug as it will go. And then you use this lever to rotate the tourniquet and spin and tighten it down until bleeding stops and there are no pulses distal to the injury. Okay. The poor man's version of this, here we have what's called a triangular bandage or a, um, a cravat. You wrap it around the injury and then you put this lever in, in, um, on it and you tie it off and you use this and twist it to create torque and that will tighten the tourniquet, much like this does, to stop the blood flow. Okay. I mentioned blood pressure cups. You want to inflate it 20 millimeters of mercury over the systolic pressure. That way you're guaranteed to collapsing the artery. Elastic rubber tubing works great. So we've used these as well as a, as a, as a tourniquet. This is what a junctional tourniquet looks like. So it gets wrapped around the pelvis and then you're pushing down on the inguinal area to compress that artery as far up as you can. So these are some of the tourniquets that are out there. When we reconvene for um, in person, we will spend some time practicing with tourniquets so that you can get comfortable with them, okay? So a couple of questions, what would indicate uh, the signs to use a junctional tourniquet? So that's if the wound is close to the groin or close to the armpit, close to the, close to the shoulder. Tourniquets are all disposable. The person's bleeding all over them. We're not going to reuse them. Okay. Um, um, yep. Uh, Nikolai had a question, but I don't know if he got it answered. Dude, because he lowered his hand. There we go. Go ahead. Yes, Nikolai. Uh, 
I have a question in regards of the timing. Is there any standard of timing how long uh, the wound, uh, the tourniquet can be placed on over the wound? Like, uh, is there so, any time restrictions? So the issue has one of the issues that we used to worry about is tissue death. Because once you apply a tourniquet and you stop blood flow beyond the tourniquet, all that tissue distal to the tourniquet is getting no blood flow. The thing is, skin and muscle tissue has a long shelf life without oxygen. So your arm, your leg, the tissue will survive two to three hours with a tourniquet on it. So because we work in an urban setting and we have sh such short ETAs to the hospital, we generally don't worry about that issue. I mean, if you've been stabbed in the leg and I've got a 10 minute ETA to the hospital, we don't have to worry about it. Um, even, in, even in suburbia or rural, if you've got a 40 minute ride to the hospital, that tourniquet is fine. Where you run into trouble is, you know, you're on the top of Mount Washington and you gotta throw a tourniquet on there. And now after four hours, eventually that tissue is gonna die. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, sir. And uh, one more question in regards of, um, do we uh, need to put the time that we put the tourniquet in the uh, patient care report? So you put it on the patient care, on the patient care report. These cat tourniquets, you, you usually put a piece of tape on it and indicate what time you did it. And you, if you look closely on this guy's head, on his forehead, there's a piece of tape with the time on there as well. Okay. That's very, that's really old school. Thanks so much, Cap. Appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, you ready? No, we have another question. How does one manage uncontrollable bleeding if you're going to exceed that time limit? You mean exceed the time limit of four hours? Mr. Gelwan? Well, here's the thing. If you're putting on a tourniquet, you're saying it's a life-threatening bleed. If you don't put on the tourniquet, you won't live four hours. So, mm, I'm thinking tourniquet. Now, what they used to say is, after a couple of hours, release the tourniquet to perfuse that tissue and then tighten it up again. Okay, try that then, all right? But pretty much if you're using a tourniquet, you're saying this is a life-threatening bleed. And then you have to figure out cost-risk, cost-benefit. Does that help, Mr. Gelwan? And then you have another question there. Yes, Ms. Okafor. Um, so say you arrive to the scene um, and the patient's bottom, so the patient has like a below the knee like amputation, but still kind of has like some, um, some space below the knee too. Would you put it like above the knee or below yeah. the, because I know you said, okay. You don't, you don't. You put it where it will work. 
Okay. That we say three to four inches away from, you know, proximal to the wound in order to spare as much tissue as we can. Okay. But if, there's, if that's not going to work, then go above the knee. And in fact, I had mentioned that if the situation is a single patient, controlled scene, you can expose the wound, you know what you have, that's the strategy. But if you're talking multiple patients, chaotic scene, then you may not have time to take a look at exactly where that wound is, in which case that tourniquet is going to go high and tight, and we're just going to risk losing the entire leg if we have to. Okay, got it. All right. Thank you. No problem. Okay, we're good? Excellent. So in talking about bleeding control, there are a couple of other measures that we can use. For instance, splinting. Splinting is helpful to control bleeding associated with fractures. If you have unstable bone ends because of a fracture, those bone ends will move back and forth. And as they do that, they're gonna do a slice and dice on tissue. You might run the risk of cutting a major artery and so now you're going to increase the blood loss. So if we have fractures, we're going to try to splint them before we move the patient, assuming it's not a load and go. If it's a load and go, then we need to load and go. We'll splint in the truck. But if I was rollerblading and I fractured my tib fib, and that's the only injury I have, that's not a load and go. You can take the time to splint the injury to prevent further bleeding. If I'm hit by a car and I'm unconscious with a tib-fib fracture, that's a load and go. We're not going to splint until we get into the truck, okay? So yes, we will load and go first before we splint, but, for those patients that are stable, we like to splint first to prevent further damage and further bleeding. There are a variety of splints out there. Rigid splints, just what you would think they are. Basically a, a padded board splint or something of that nature. And then there are air splints. Air splints are um, splints that are made out of plastic that you inflate. So you put the splint on the injury, it goes around, entirely around the injury like a sleeve, and you inflate it. So that works as a really good splint, but it also can be used just for soft tissue injuries as a pressure dressing, right? So I put a, a dressing on there, I put the splint on there, I inflate it, and now it's like having pressure applied automatically. And so air splints can make nifty pressure dressings. So that's something to think about. Hemophiliacs do not get extra care. It's the same mechanism. When they get to the hospital, they'll probably get transfusions and probably are quicker to head to surgery. But as far as out of hospital, 
There's nothing out more that we're going to do. We're not going to give them more care. We're not going to give other people less care. Okay. Any other questions? Excellent. So, so that's how we control external bleeding. There are a couple of special types of bleeding that I do want to address or a special type of bleeding. Something called epistaxis. Epistaxis is just a clever or a medical term for bloody nose. There are several causes or lots of different causes for a bloody nose. This is the trauma module. So the most obvious cause is a punch to the face or a blow to the face. Obviously going to cause a nosebleed. But there are other things, for instance, um, dry, um, warm weather or environment will cause your nose to dry out and will cause it to bleed. Um, cocaine use, um, high blood pressure. So there are a number of medical causes that will cause a nosebleed. Nose picking, or as I like to think of it, epistaxis digitalis. So there are lots of things that will cause nosebleeds. So how do we fix it? First of all, if your mother told you to tilt your head back, she was mis either misinformed or trying to kill you. The worst position to be in is tilting your head back because that's going to cause blood to go into your throat and then you're going to swallow it and then you're going to throw it up. The best position is to be seated upright and leaning forward to allow it to drain drain. So now we've positioned our patient so that blood can drain. The next thing we want to do is try to control the hemorrhage directly. Pinching the nostrils will help, especially if it's an anterior nosebleed. Here we see this gentleman pinching her nose. Woo -woo 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 -woo. Yuck, yuck, yuck. I generally have the patient pinch their own nose. The other thing that you can do is you can apply a cold pack to the bridge of the nose. That will cause the blood vessels to vasoconstrict. And now what that will do is that will slow the bleeding. If you are going to put a chemical cold pack on anyone's face, you want to put it in something that will not leak. We usually put our cold packs into a glove and they hold the glove to their face because if this chemical gets in their eyes, it will burn. And another thing you can do is you can give the patient a piece of gauze and they can press up underneath their lip against their gum. And there's a blood vessel that feeds up into the nose. And by pushing down on that, you're slowing the flow of blood. Obviously, the, these patients, usually we're going to transport, especially patients that have been punched in the nose. But if I have a history of nosebleeds and I can control it and I decide to refuse, patients have the right to refuse. Okay. Questions about managing nosebleeds. Got your nose. So we've been talking about external bleeding mostly and controlling epistaxis, but you can bleed internally as well. 
And bleeding internally becomes a significant problem because it's very difficult to manage that bleeding. It's not like you can throw a tourniquet on that. So when we talk about an internal bleeding, a couple of different situations can arise. If someone has a closed fracture, okay, so this is a fracture with no open wound, that fracture can bleed into the tissue. Bone itself has got blood vessels and the bone ends will have damaged some blood vessels. So now you've got this bleeding going in into your, into your tissue. How much blood can you lose? Well, for a humeral fracture, you can lose from 500 to 750 cc's. Again, for most people, that's under the 15%. So the patient will be able to compensate for that fine. And that's why we don't look at a fractured humerus as a load and go. When you talk about the lower leg, a tib-fib, again, about 500 cc's can be lost into the tissue. Usually your body will manage that fairly well. Femurs get interesting. You can lose about 1,000 to 1,500 cc's of blood into a closed femur fracture, a closed thigh, okay? So when you get to 1,000 cc's, you're talking about close to 15%, okay? So now we get worried. And you can see where if you had bilateral femur fractures, that would be a load and go. Questions about fractures so far? Okay, your pelvis. The rule of thumb is you lose about 500 cc's of blood per fracture to your pelvis. The thing is your pelvis is a bony ring and it usually fractures in more than one place. So if you've got two fractures, now you're talking 1,000 cc's. And that's why we consider a pelvic fracture to be life-threatening. In addition, there's lots of very large vessels in your pelvis where if they get cut, you can bleed to death. So pelvic injury is a significant injury. Questions about fractures. So again, these are closed fractures, blood loss into the surrounding tissue, and very often, because you're bleeding into that confined space, it eventually will tamponade off and slow down. If you have an open fracture, you could just keep on bleeding, okay? We can also sequester or hide a lot of blood loss in the cavities of our body. Most notably, places like our thorax. You can lose about three liters of blood into your chest, okay? So that's a problem. In addition, in your abdomen, because it is so elastic and compressible, you can lose almost your entire blood volume, four to six liters. If you lacerate your iliac artery in your pelvis, you could lose four to six liters of blood into your pelvis. 
And this is why when we talk about abdominal injury, we're very, very concerned about blood loss and hemorrhagic shock. Notice the skull is not up there. You're not going to lose enough blood into your skull to get into hemorrhagic shock. If your patient is showing you hemorrhagic shock with a head injury, they're bleeding someplace other than their head. Okay. Questions about internal bleeding, sources of internal bleeding. Okay. Good. The humerus is the arm. Some other things that might crop up that tell you someone's bleeding internally. Hemoptysis. You might recall hemoptysis is coughing up blood. This would indicate respiratory injury. It's unusual to lose enough blood from coughing up blood to get into trouble. But if someone's been punched or kicked in the chest and they're coughing up some blood, that indicates they're bleeding into their chest. So even though it's only about 5, 10, 15 cc's of blood coughing up, being coughed up, they might be losing way more blood into their chest cavity. Hematemesis or hematemesis. This is blood coming from the upper GI tract. And we talked about bright red being a more brisk, dangerous bleed, whereas coffee grounds tend to be a slower bleed because it's digested blood. You can have hematochasia, bright red blood from the rectum. You can have melana, dark tarry stool. And again, most of these do not necessarily indicate dangerous bleeding, um, but they could indicate underlying issues. Hematuria indicates bladder or kidney injury, especially if you can see frank blood in, in the urine. Vaginal bleeding can indicate um, a number of medical problems that we've discussed, things like um, ectopic pregnancy, things like miscarriage. Um, so there's a number of causes. Usually, um, traumatic vaginal bleeding is the result of some sort of assault. A hematoma. A hematoma is a collection of blood that's contained in a localized space. So, for instance, when you hit your head and you feel a lump, that's a hematoma. Okay. Now, you can have really large hematomas that develop in certain parts of your body, like in your leg. You can have hematomas that develop um, underneath, for instance, under your skull and your brain. So there are a number of places where hematomas can be created. But what happens is you're bleeding, and there's a collection, a discrete collection of blood contained within the tissue.
Echimosis is a fancy word for, bru for bruising. Echimosis itself generally does not bleed enough to cause a life threat, but usually the echimosis indicates some sort of blunt force trauma, and now I have to worry about the organ underneath it. If I have a large bruise in my right upper quadrant, the bruise itself is not the problem. It's the fact that the bruise is being caused by a bleeding liver, and that's life-threatening. I see a question, how do we measure how much blood is being lost internally? The answer is you don't. We're not gonna worry so much about a number. We're gonna worry about how the patient presents. You know, you may be bleeding into your stomach or into your abdomen, and if you're not symptomatic, then you're not bleeding enough to get into trouble. But if you're symptomatic, you're bleeding enough to get into trouble. So I'm not worried about the number or the amount of blood. What I'm saying is the amount of blood helps dictate how severe it is. But I don't need to see a liter of blood on the floor to recognize you're in trouble. I'm going to go based on the patient's presentation. The amount of blood helps me anticipate what's going on. Other questions about internal bleeding? So the question of a hematoma that causes swelling, if you hit your head, would you put ice on it? Yes. Your mom was right about that part. So anytime we're talking about bleeding, we have to worry about shock, hypoperfusion. We talked about that last time. So remember the signs and symptoms of shock. The early signs are your compensatory mechanisms kicking in. You may have some altered level of consciousness, something as subtle as anxiety, something more dramatic like combativeness. Your heart rate's gonna kick up to compensate. You're gonna have a little bit of vasoconstriction to compensate. And then as things progress, you'll start getting pale, cool, clammy, weak, some nausea, your mental status will go from being slightly altered to decreased. And as you start entering decompensated shock, your, your peripheral pulses will begin to weaken. Once you get hypotensive, once your patient is hypotensive, you are having a, de you, you have a decompensated patient. Okay, so hypotension, is a late sign of shock. It tells you that the patient's compensatory mechanisms are not working, and we know that because their blood pressure is low. I don't need to, I don't need to figure out how much blood they've lost in their chest from the stab wound. I know they've lost enough that their blood pressure is 90 over 50. Okay. Questions about the sequence of events when we talk about hemorrhagic shock. Okay. Okay. Doesn't look that way, Cap. What? We got questions? Nope. Okay, cool. Thank you. 
So emergency care to summarize. Airway, 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 administer O2, high flow O2, if, they're, if they have significant bleeding. And we need to keep the patient warm. Hypothermia affects your clotting cascade and will make you bleed more. So we wanna be aware of that. You need to stop the leaking, control the hemorrhage. There's an acronym that we use, DEPT, D for direct pressure, E for elevation, P for proximal pressure point, T for tourniquet, and it doesn't have to be in that order, okay? It's going to be situational. If I arrive on scene and you've got an arterial bleed from your leg, I know I'm not gonna be able to manage that with direct pressure only. So I'm gonna get a tourniquet on there while my partner tries direct pressure. Once the tourniquet is on and we stop the bleeding, we can move on with our assessment. If you don't have an arterial bleed, you just have a significant an injury, then I'm gonna start with direct pressure. And if direct pressure doesn't work after a couple of minutes, then I'll, I'll go tourniquet, okay? Elevation and proximal pressure point help enhance direct pressure. So that may help you control that bleeding. But if those measures don't work for an extremity, then we'll head toward a tourniquet. Positioning, elevation helps. If the patient is feeling weak because of their blood loss, laying them flat to help their brain perfuse better, elevating the injured part will help. So positioning is a, is a tool that we can use. Point of entry, not all trauma has to go to a trauma center. It just doesn't. But if you have significant trauma that meets the trauma criteria, then we're going to try to go to the appropriate hospital. Okay? If I have someone that was stabbed in the, in the forearm, I don't need to take that to a trauma center. That can go to a hospital that's not a trauma center, okay? But if I have someone who's stabbed in the upper arm with an arterial bleed, then a trauma center might be a better choice just because the vascular surgeon. If I have someone who's got an amputation, now I'm definitely gonna go to a trauma center. If you are going to a hospital with a significant bleed, then consider an entry note. You don't need to do an entry note for every boo-boo. You don't, unless, you're, unless your agency requires it. But for the most part, we'll do entry notifications as dictated by um, policy and the patient's injuries. Okay, so questions about emergency care. Well, Captain, I think that this would be a good place for our first polling question. Uh, Captain, before we throw up the first polling question, uh, we have a question about Quiz 7. Um, quiz the, 7 will, will um, be uh, regarding allergies, abdominal illnesses, toxicology, and environment. So the rest of the medical subjects allergic reactions, toxicology, 
abdominal illnesses, environment. Excellent. Any other questions on that before we throw out the poll questions or any other questions currently about quiz seven? And we will let you know about the makeup test um, soon. Excellent. All right, poll question. Here we go.
All right, so we're coming back here. So if everyone can join us again. And here we go, Captain. About You had a little split decision here. You had about 45% say um, they felt like anaphylactic shock was the appropriate answer. And then 40% said none of the above. So the 40% of you that said none of the above, you were right. Septic shock, anaphylactic shock, and neurogenic shock all involve a degree of vasodilation. And that's what causes the low blood pressure. So those of you that recognize that, strong work. Good job. And then, um, hold on one second here. Um, was, how, did anyone else have a problem printing up the second handout? Okay, I need to look on that. You still have some more to go on this bleeding, right, Captain? Nope, that's it. All right, hold on. Let me just take a quick look at something real quick. Okay, Captain, they're going to need a minute. Unfortunately, it was supposed to post both, but it didn't. So let me just uh, fix that real quick for them. All right. So there was a question, what are the types of shock where you vasoconstrict? Um, well, hemorrhagic shock, cardiogenic shock, respiratory shock, metabolic shock, right? Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Ms. LaPierre. Um, wasn't anaphylactic part metabolic and distributive? So an anaphylaxis is not metabolic um, other than the hypoxic side of things. So when we talk about metabolic, we're talking more along the lines of while hypoxia does make you is a form of metabolic shock, um, we're talking about insulin issues, hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, that sort of stuff. But anaphylaxis causes vasodilation. Right. Thank you. You're welcome.
Sure. How are we doing there, Captain? I'm not muted. Already, uh, standby, Captain. Okay, everybody should have the second one up. I know it's not going to allow you to, I know it doesn't give many people a lot of time to print it up. Sorry about that. Now I, I know that I can't upload them apparently in one file, I'm trying to make my life easier, but apparently not going to happen. But uh, it is up. All right. So we're going to get started because we're going to get started. <laughs> so we talked about shock. We've talked about bleeding. Now we're going to talk a bit about soft tissue injury. Because, of course, that's where we see an awful lot of our hemorrhagic shock due to bleeding. So first, I want to do a quick review of the skin. And we ask the musical question, what does the skin do for you? So if you remember, when we talked about the function of the skin, so one of the major functions is thermoregulation. It's the major way we manage our heat load, right? Either by vascular dilation to get rid of heat or vasoconstriction to conserve heat. In addition, sweating is our major mech is a major mechanism to get rid of heat. And this becomes important because in certain injuries, such as burns, where you get destruction of your skin, you're going to lose the ability to regulate your body temperature. So you're going to be more prone to things like um, hypothermia. So it's major thermoregulatory organ in your body. It's a protective barrier from things getting in. So things like bacteria and stuff like that. So obviously anytime you have a break in your skin, we have to be concerned about infection. It's a protective barrier from leakage. So if you have damaged skin, again, like from burns, now you're going to be losing fluid from means other than bleeding, right? So again, a barrier for us. And last but not least, it's the major sensory organ in our body as far as relating information about our environment to us so we can maintain homeostasis. Questions about those functions of the skin. Okay. So let's do a quick review of the anatomy of the skin. As we look at this, we can recall that the outermost layer of the skin is called the epidermis. The epidermis is the um, layer that we're constantly sloughing off skin cells. The thickness of the epidermis varies from body part to body part. Some places it's thicker than others. An epidermis is really the outermost layer that's there to protect us from the outside. The next layer is the kind of zigzaggy dark layer right there. And that's called the germinal layer. The germinal layer does a couple of things for us. First of all, it gives rise to the epidermis. So the epidermis grows 
from the germinal layer outward. In addition, that is the layer where we will find our um, pigment, our, our, our melanin. So the germinal layer gives rise to the epidermis and also has our pigment. Below the germinal layer is the business layer of our skin, the layer of the skin that does the work per se. This is where you have your nerve endings. This is where you have your blood vessels. This is where you have um, hair follicles, sweat glands, oil glands. So all the stuff that helps the skin do the things the skin does are found in that dermal layer. Okay. Below that, we have some fatty tissue. Fatty tissue acts as cushioning and acts as a energy reserve for us in the form of um, fats that we can tap into if we need to. And then from there, we get into the more, more of the muscular tissue. So we have the fascia. The fascia is a fibrous coating, a, a membranous coating of our um, casing that covers our muscle cells, our muscle fibers. Um, pretty much it binds muscles, fibers together to do a like job, okay, kind of like sausage casing. And then we've got the mus muscle tissue. Okay. There's also some specialized tissue that comes off of our skin called the mucous membranes. So pretty much there are certain points on, in our external skin where we transition to um, mucous tissue. And that usually lines our hollow organs. So for instance, our alimentary canal, our food, that's mucous membrane, okay? Questions about the anatomy of the skin. So let's talk about soft tissue injuries. When we talk about soft tissue injuries, we divide them up into three types. The first type is closed injury. Closed injuries are the result of blunt force trauma. And there's no break in the skin, but there's damage to the tissue below the skin, okay? Now you can sustain blunt force trauma to the extent that your skin will stretch and tear, but we don't call that closed injury, even though it's caused by blunt force trauma. The moment you tear the skin, we call it an open injury. Once you have an open injury, once you have a break in the surface of the skin, now stuff can leak out and stuff can get in. So now we need to be concerned about infection as well. The third type of injury called burns. Our skin is designed to absorb a certain amount of energy to keep us safe. Under certain circumstances, our skin will absorb too much energy. And now what happens is that skin is damaged. We're going to talk about burns under separate cover on Thursday. So tonight we're going to focus on closed injuries and open injuries. Okay. 
but burns are where you would see damage to the skin that would cause you to have a tough time regulating your body temperature and also um, fluid loss that's non-hemorrhagic. If you remember when we talked about hypovolemia, we talked about hemorrhagic and non-hemorrhagic loss of fluid. That would be an example of non-hemorrhagic loss of fluid. So let's talk about closed injuries. As you look at this individual's leg, you will notice that there is pretty much a wide variety of colors there. So that's what we call ecchymosis, okay? So this is blunt trauma. And in fact, that ecchymosis is due to damaged blood vessels, damaged, damaged capillaries that are leaking blood into the tissue. We also, if anyone's ever had a bruise, that's all ecchymosis is, is bruising. If you've ever had a bruise, you know that that black and blue mark, the ecchymosis, will change color as it heals. It generally starts off as a vivid purple, bluish color. And then as the tissue heals and that blood gets reabsorbed and digested, it starts turning colors into things like faded blue, a uh, faded, it starts to fade. It starts turning kind of a yellowish color and then eventually it fades away. So the discoloration is dictated on the stage of healing. So ecchymosis, great triple word score in Scrabble, um, is the black and blue mark, the bruising. In addition, when those capillaries break and they leak, they leak into the surrounding tissue and cause edema. Edema is basically swelling. So ecchymosis is the discoloration due to damaged vessels. Edema is the swelling due to damaged tissue. And the injury itself, the whole injury, is called a contusion. Okay, so this is a contusion and it's characterized by ecchymosis and edema. Questions about contusions? Cool. From there, we have a hematoma. So right here is a hematoma on someone's leg. They sustained some sort of trauma and now they had some bleeding into the tissue and it's collected to the point where you've got this localized collection of blood. So this is the localized collection of blood under the skin. You can also find it in a body cavity or on an organ. So for instance, if someone hits you in the head and you're bleeding under your skull, it's not a scalp injury, but inside your skull, you can have what's called an epidural hematoma, a collection of blood on top of your dura. You can have a hematoma on just about any solid organ, right? You can have hematomas on any organ. If there's any bleeding and it just gathers in a place, 
That's a hematoma. You also notice because of that bleeding, the size of this leg is large, is lar has enlarged. That's due to edema. You might have some associated ecchymosis. You can see some bruising here, okay? So the bruising is the result of the damaged vessels, but the hematoma is the collection of blood. Something like this, they actually might have to go and try to evacuate it. So they might insert a needle to try to withdraw the blood. They might surgically incise that to try to get the clot out. Or they may just wait to see if it gets reabsorbed on, their, on its own. Usually for closed injuries, the emergency care that we would use, we would do, is an acronym called ICES. Yes, yet another acronym. I is for ice. Ice causes vasoconstriction, which will slow bleeding into the tissue. C is for compression. Compression puts pressure on those blood vessels so that they can clot and reduces the bleeding. E is for elevation, elevating the body part above the heart. So for instance, if it's your leg, elevating, elevating your leg, your arm, elevate your arm. And what that does is by reducing blood flow in, and enhancing blood flow back, you reduce the amount of blood in the tissue and it's going to reduce the swelling. And S is for splint. And this is usually something we would do um, when we have an underlying fracture or a suspected fracture underneath, okay? So emergency medical care for closed injuries is usually ices. Questions about that? Okay. So I see some questions. Would closed injuries count as bruises? Bruises or contusions are a type of closed injury. Are hematomas bad for surrounding tissue? The problem with hematomas is that they occupy space. And when they occupy space, they create pressure. And if you put too much pressure on tissue, the pressure can um, re reduces blood flow to healthy tissue. So hematomas can be bad for surrounding tissue. Any other questions regarding closed injuries? No, you're good, Captain. Thank you, Captain. So now we get to open wounds. Open wounds cover a whole lot of territory. The simplest, most benign form of open wound are abrasions. Abrasions are caused by friction, road rash, rug burn, whatever. Um, and it's caused by um, the abrading of the superficial layers of the skin off of the tissue, off of the rest of the tissue. 
So what usually happens is you end up with an area such as this, where you've taken off the top layer of the epidermis and you're exposing the lower layer of the epidermis, just the very beginning of the dermal layer. And it's fairly painful because now you've exposed some of those nerve endings. The blood vessels that are disrupted are usually capillaries. So you're not going to see a whole lot of blood loss, but more of this oozing, almost blood-tinged water-like substance. Okay. So obviously uncomfortable, but not life-threatening. Okay. Questions about abrasions. Pretty sure just about everyone has skinned their knee or, or braided something. From there, we get to lacerations. Lacerations are when a sharp object um, cuts, cuts through the tissue. In some instances, blunt force can stretch the skin so much that the skin will actually tear creating an open wound as well. And there are a number of ways this can present. You can have linear lacerations like these. These are fairly linear and straight. Now, when you were to, if you were to take a look at these linear injuries under um, a magnifying glass, some of them might be very smooth edged. For instance, something made by a scalpel or the edge might be rough, like for instance, a piece of glass might, might cause a rough edge. There are stellate lacerations. These are lacerations that basically look like there are se um, several lacerations emanating from a center. So they look like a star. So think in terms of someone hitting their head on a, on a window, on a windshield and creating this kind of stellate injury in their head. The depth of a laceration can vary. There are some parts of our body where the skin is fairly thin. For instance, our scalp. Our scalp is fairly vascular, but it's also very thin. There's only a thin layer of tissue covering our skull. And there are some areas where that tissue is very thick. For instance, muscle tissue. Here's a calf or a gastrocnemius. And you can get a fairly significant cut. A full thickness laceration on my scalp is not going to be as deep as a full thickness laceration in my calf or my thigh, okay? And if you were able to see this, or if this were enlarged, you'd see that this is kind of a, an anatomy lesson. You can actually see the shiny tissue, that's fascia. And you might see this globular tissue, that's a little bit of fat. So we've got skin, the layers of skin, some fat, and now you've got the fascia and the muscle tissue is under there. Questions about lacerations. Okay. The cleaner the cut, the more transverse the cut, 
the less bleed there's likely to be because when you cut the blood vessel straight through, not at an angle, but perpendicular, the muscle in the middle layer of that blood vessel contract and causes that vessel to constrict a little bit at the end, and that slows the bleeding. When you have tearing injury, right? When you have tearing injury, now those don't constrict as well, and they tend to bleed more, more and more. Okay. Questions about that? So we have lacerations. From there, we have avulsions. So avulsions are caused by a mechanism that causes a separation of the layers of the skin. So a lot of times it will look like a scoop or almost like someone took a blade and cut at an angle, scooping the tissue up and away from the, from the body. Because of the angle of the injury, those blood vessels, when they contract, don't really seal very well and they bleed a lot. And that's because it's at an angle. Usually there's also a lot of tearing with these injuries because of the mechanism. When you cut this tissue at an angle, it creates a flap. The name for that flap is a pedicle, okay? The pedicle is that loose flappy part of tissue that's created by the injury. You can have a partial pedicle, which means that the pedicle, that flap, is still attached to the body, in which case we are going to place that flap into the original position where it belongs and bandage it in that way. You can have a complete pedicle. This is when that flap is detached from the body. If that happens, we're going to wrap the detached tissue in a dry, sterile gauze and transport it to the hospital. Now, obviously, depending upon the size of the pedicle, if it's just a small little piece, then probably not. But if it's a large chunk, there's a possibility it could be reattached, okay? We're not going to make a career out of searching for the pedicle, but if we happen to find it, then fine. Dry sterile gauze, go to the hospital. If you have a partial pedicle still attached, please don't complete the job. Just flop it back, okay? Questions about avulsions. From there, we get amputations. Now, amputations are when you have a disruption of the continuity of an appendage. So for instance, you've lopped off a finger, you've lopped off a hand, an arm, whatever it is. The degree of bleeding is going to depend upon the mechanism, okay? So for instance, 
if you are um, fall into a in front of a train and the train severs your leg, there's a possibility there might not be all that much bleeding because of the crushing nature of that of that mechanism. Or if someone were to lop it off with a piece of machinery, a blade, for instance, there, there'd be bleeding, but there's likely to be a lot of vasoconstriction as well. If it's a crush injury or a tearing injury, it's going to be more bleeding. You can have a partial amputation or a complete amputation. If you have a partial amputation, then what we're going to do is place the amputated part in position where it should be, put a bulky dressing on it to protect it and immobilize it and splint it that way. If it's a complete amputation, we're gonna take the amputated part, wrap it in a dry sterile dressing, preferably put it in a plastic bag and try to keep it cool. You may not have an, a plastic bag handy, okay, then fine, but we're going to do a dry sterile dressing and keep it cool. We don't wanna freeze it, we just wanna cool it. And we're gonna transport the patient and the appendage to the hospital. If the appendage is not obviously available, then we're gonna to go to the hospital and someone else can remain on scene, law enforcement, a supervisor, to look for the appendage. But if we can find the appendage, we will transport it, okay? Questions about amputations? All right. Penetrating wounds obviously tend to be sharp objects that go into the body. This particular picture of a nail going through a finger is an impaled object, yes. It's also what we call a perforating injury because it goes straight through, okay? If you have an impaled object, then we're going to leave the object in place, okay? First of all, it's acting as a plug. Second of all, if you do, if you pull it out, you can cause more damage. So impaled objects stay in place. Sometimes it's tough to tell how far a penetrating wound goes. Um, if you've been stabbed in the belly, you may not know how deep that goes. It could be, you know, the full length of a blade, if the blade was three inches. Maybe it's just um, an inch or so. It's hard to tell. As healthcare providers out in the field, we're not going to start probing wounds. In the hospital, the ED doc or the surgeon may probe the wound to see how deep it is, but we are not. So bleeding and depth is going to vary on the size of the object um, and in what part of the body um, is involved. 
I had mentioned when we were talking about mechanism of injury, when we talk about penetrating trauma, we're always worried about entry and exit wounds. So make sure if you're talking about any sort of trauma, but especially penetrating trauma, you get a good look at all the surfaces of the patient. You don't want to miss any wounds. Okay. Questions about that? Cool. All right. In this picture, you can notice there's the entry wound at the anterior wrist. You can actually see the discoloration caused by the gunshot, um, the gunpowder. And then when you flip the hand over, you can see how that wound has exploded, right? We mentioned that entry wounds and exit wounds can appear differently. Any questions about those types of wounds? So this is a good place for us to pop up the second poll question, Captain. Woohoo, second poll question. Second poll question. There is a second poll question. Mm -hmm. It's here somewhere. I'm sure. Stand by. Here we go. That should be up. It is, I see it. Woohoo. All right, Captain. Captain, you need to unmute. How'd we do? There we go. All right, let's uh, welcome everybody back here. And what we did, Captain, was 88% felt like 
tourniquet should be tightened until the distal pulse is absent. And 88% of you would be absolutely correct. Woohoo! Everyone uh, loves tourniquets. Everyone finds tourniquets sexy. I want to remind everybody that if you press a distal point below the bleeding, that won't help anyone. Yeah, it's a proximal pressure point, not a distal one. And hypothermia increases bleeding by reducing clotting. So there you go. Good job, folks. Well, 88% of you. So we're going to talk about some special cases of wounds. And then we'll talk about how to treat them. So we're talking about impaled objects. As you look at this poor, unfortunate individual, clearly we have a shard of glass in there embedded in their, ne in their neck. Think in terms of what structures are at risk here. Think in terms of the trachea midline. Think in terms of large blood vessels, right? So we don't wanna be yanking this out because anything that has any bleeding that's stopped is going to be just start up again. You don't know what this looks like under the skin, so you don't know if it's going to cause more damage. So we're going to leave that in place. So how are we going to you know, secure that? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to pad the, uh, the impaled object with bulky dressings to prevent it from moving. We don't want the patient's head moving, their neck moving, because it's just gonna cause that object to move around. So when we talk about impaled objects, we're not going to remove them unless, and there's always an exception, it's in the cheek causing an airway issue. So if someone has a pencil stuck in their cheek, and it's creating an airway issue, then we'll try to remove it. But otherwise, an impaled object in any part of the body stays put, okay? We'll immobilize the object in place. And if you need to control bleeding, what you wanna do is you wanna compress, as you're building your bulky dressing, you wanna compress the tissue around the impaled object to help tamponade the bleeding, okay? So needless to say, these objects can be um, challenging. Um, we've had several instances where the size of the object was prohibitive. For instance, um, a gentleman who was a mason, and I don't mean a member of the fraternal order, um, had a nine foot pry bar in his station wagon and when he slammed on his brakes, the pry bar went fo moved forward and went through his brain his skull. Obviously, you can't yank that out, and you can't exactly transport him with a nine-foot pry bar in his head. So now you have to start thinking about what do I do? So we got the fire department, and they were able to use their toys, their tools, to um cut the object, the pry bar, to a more manageable size. Now stop to think about that for a minute. Think about what the risks are when you're using 
tools like that on a metal pry bar in someone's head. First of all, there's vibration. And second of all, there's heat generated. So now you have to kind of figure out how we're gonna manage that, okay? By the way, he survived, go figure. Questions at all? Okay. So there is that question there, Captain, about what if the glass in the throat was an airway compromise? Can you talk a little bit about impaled objects and airway compromise? Okay, so when we're talking about, I didn't say in the that impaled objects that cause an, an airway compromise. I said impaled objects in the cheek causing an airway compromise. If there's an impaled object here, here, in my chest causing an airway compromise, that stays in place. Only in the cheek, okay? Questions about that? That help? That clarified a lot, thanks, Captain. Excellent. Another type of injury that is certainly special and gives us um, some special considerations, some special things to think about are crush injuries. Crush injuries result when there's a force applied to tissue for a prolonged period of time. And this can come in a lot of different shapes and situations. For instance, um, a building collapse could trap somebody. Um, a car accident could entrap someone's legs. Um, if you have a, a large person, a very large person who falls down and cannot get up, just their body weight against the floor for a long period of time can cause a crush injury. Okay, so something to think about. When we talk about crush injury, that tissue that is being compressed starts to die. What happens is because of the compression, blood flow cannot get to the tissue. When blood flow can't get to the tissue, oxygen can't get to the tissue. So now this tissue changes metabolism from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. And we know that a waste product of anaerobic metabolism is lactic acid. If too much lactic acid builds up and it's released into the circulatory system when we free this person, that lactic acid could cause cardiac dysrhythmias. In addition, muscle tissue will begin to break down. And when muscle tissue breaks down, it releases very large proteins that allow the muscle tissue to do what it does. And that's a process called rhabdomyolysis. Myo is muscle, lysis is breaking down. So what happens is the muscle tissue breaks down and releases these large proteins into the blood. These large proteins 
can cause acute renal failure. And the acidosis that's created can cause cardiac issues. In addition, think about being crushed, having all that tissue injury, and then all of a sudden having that large weight lifted off of you. Now, blood goes into that damaged tissue and you bleed out. And all those nasty chemicals that were in the tissue get flushed upward and create issues. So closed crush injuries create a lot of complications that we need to be familiar with. So just be careful when you have someone who's entrapped, for instance, extrication is important, but you might be doing more harm than good. You wanna think for a moment about what the consequences might be, okay? Questions about crush injury? Cool. So in this instance, you've got a closed crush injury. You can also have open crushed injuries, crush injuries based on the mechanism. And these usually entail huge amounts of tissue damage. So you've got the damage caused by the crushing forces. You've got open injury, and now you've got issues revolving around um, infection. So really, open crush injury creates a number of, of issues here. So the hemorrhage is going to depend upon the mechanism, and so is any swelling. So when you have open injuries like this, you can also get some swelling distally and proximally. So obviously this gentleman is going to lose his leg. Okay. Questions about open crush, inj crush injuries. A lot of open crush injuries are caused by machinery. Open wounds to the chest. One of the issues that we're worried about with open wounds to the chest is air getting sucked into the chest through that hole. Remember we said when you breathe in, your chest gets bigger. That volume increase causes the pressure inside to drop and air gets sucked in through your trachea. That's great if your chest is intact. But if you have a hole in your chest, then air is going to get sucked in through that hole as well, creating what's called a sucking chest wound. And as we know in EMS, all chest wounds suck. The complication that arises is a pneumothorax. And you may remember that a pneumothorax is an accumulation of air in the pleural space and it causes the lung to collapse. Now, in this illustration, there's a knife and it's put a hole in the chest, it's put a hole in the lung. So now you're gonna get air into the pleural space from both the hole in the chest from the outside and the hole in the lung from the inside and now this lung will collapse. Because the source of the issue 
source of the problem is air getting into the chest cavity through a hole that shouldn't be there. Our treatment is plug up the hole. The way we plug up a chest wound is we use an occlusive dressing. An occlusive dressing is anything that does not allow air to pass through. So in this case, you can see in this picture, they're using a piece of plastic film, almost like saran wrap, and they're taping it on, taping it to the person's chest, and that will prevent air from getting into the hole when he breathes in. There are commercially available occlusive dressings. For instance, there's Vaseline gauze. It's sterile gauze with that's impregnated by Vaseline. I just wanted to say impregnated. Um, and that prevents air from moving in and out. Um, there are commercially available chest seals. A nitrile glove will work. The plastic wrapping from your O2 mask will work. So it doesn't have to be a commercial dressing. Anything will work as long as air can't move through it. And we'll talk a bit more about chest wounds and occlusive dressings when we talk about chest injury in a week or so. Questions about that? So here we have an individual who apparently um, cut himself shaving. To give you some landmarks, this is his ear down here in the middle at the bottom of his picture. Right at the edge of the, of the sheet is his mouth, and that's an OPA in his mouth, his chin, and now you have this large gaping wound running basically from the angle of his jaw around. So obviously when you see a wound like this, your first concern has got to be airway, airway, airway. Is he bleeding into his airway? Has he lacerated his trachea? Is air going to be able to get into him um, through the normal way, his nose and his mouth? Or is it gonna leak out? Think in terms of blood vessels. You've got major arteries, your carotid artery. If that's been lacerated, you could bleed out in a matter of a minute or two. There's a major vein that runs from your head down into your chest, the jugular vein. Think in terms of air getting sucked into that vein and heading toward the heart, creating an air embolus. So when we're talking about managing open wounds of the neck like this, we need to think about these issues. If you're worried about an arterial bleed, obviously a tourniquet is not the way to go. I'm just saying. So you may need to use manual pressure. You may need to stick your finger into that wound and pinch off the carotid artery if you have to, okay? 
If you're worried about the jugular vein, you may want to throw an occlusive dressing on there to prevent air from getting sucked in. So there are lots of things to worry about when you're talking about these soft tissue injuries to the neck. Questions about this gentleman's shaving accident? Okay. So how do you address something like this? Well, first of all, he should have his neck slit for wearing a shirt like that, but that's another story entirely. You can't put anything around the neck because it might compromise the airway or if they're swelling, it could choke him. They are using a technique here where they apply a pressure dressing. The wound is right here on the left side, I mean, the right side of his neck. And then what they do is they apply some roller gauze around that area, underneath the armpit, back around. So it makes a figure eight. So you're never going around the entire neck. You're only going around one side and then around the armpit and back and around. It's elegant enough. The other thing you might consider is putting that dressing in place, a bulky dressing, <clears throat> and then applying a cervical collar to keep that snug. And we have found that that works pretty well for us as well. Yes, I do think that that shirt is a fashion statement. Eviscerations. This is an evisceration. This is a loop of bowel. So this is the small intestine. Okay, some landmarks, suprapubic area, probably should have gotten a Brazilian. We've got the iliac crest right here. And we also have what? You were thinking it. Come on now. And right here is the costal arch. Okay. So this is a loop of bowel. Ms. Smith, do you need me to go back? There you go. There we go. So back to our uh, evisceration. So an evisceration causes the organ to come out. We're not going to poke it. We're not going to shove it back in. We're not going to yank on it to see how much of it we have. Okay. So we're not going to pr push anything in. The best thing to do is to try to secure this in place, okay? The easiest way of doing this is using a large bulky dressing and soaking it in saline, all right? So we have sterile saline on our ambulance. So we're gonna take this bulky dressing that's soaked in saline and cover it. And what that does is it's going to keep it in place. From there, 
We're going to use something to bind it in place. You can do a couple of things. You can take, for instance, saran wrap, and we do carry saran wrap, and wrap it around the patient's torso. That will keep it in place. You can put a bulky dressing over it and tape that into place. You can also use aluminum foil. Now, the thing about aluminum foil, two things. One, actually three things. One, it will prevent heat loss. You can lose an enormous amount of heat from your ab abdominal wound. For instance, during the Korean War, um, during uh, if you're familiar with MASH units, when the surgeons were doing abdominal surgery and during the cold Korean winters, they would actually warm their hands over the open bellies that they were repairing because it was warmer than the, sur than the surgical suite. For those of you that are not aficionados of classic TV or movies like MASH, there's the scene on the ice planet where Harrison Ford cuts open the belly and shoves Luke Skywalker in there to keep him warm. Remember that? Thank you very much, Mr. Lou. Star Wars aficionado. The downside to aluminum foil is you don't want to put it directly on any organs because aluminum foil can lacerate a, a, um, an organ. And also, and most importantly, if you use aluminum foil, you cannot put this patient into the microwave. I'm just saying. Questions about eviscerations? Okay. So let's talk about wound care in general. We've shown you lots of different wounds. For the most part, wound care is best accomplished using dry, sterile dressings. There are very few situations where moist dressings are appropriate. Eviscerations, yes. Eye injuries, yes. But otherwise, dry sterile dressings. Dry sterile dressings come in a number of sizes. The most familiar dry sterile dressing that you would be familiar with is a Band-Aid. Band-Aid is a dry sterile dressing. Okay? But from there, we go to gauze pads. You can have gauze pads that are small, two by two four by four inches, five by nine. Trauma dressings are very large pads. They're about 13 inches by about 10 inches. So you wanna pick the right pad for the right job. And we're gonna go over that when we talk about, or when we practice wound management, we'll have you actually see all the bandages and play with them so you can see what they're like. So bandages, so dressings rather, are applied to the wound. We talked about occlusive dressings. I mentioned petroleum gauze. Petroleum gauze is used only for chest wounds. We do not put petroleum gauze on eviscerations. Plastic wrap can be used for a chest wound, for a neck wound, for a belly wound. You can use petroleum gauze for a neck wound as well. 
We also have a type of dressing called hemostatic dressings. Hemostatic dressings, if you've ever been in the military, you're familiar with them, are, ga are gauze dressings that have been saturated or impregnated with a chemical that increases clotting. Hemostatic dressings are not for topical use. We don't take a hemostatic dressing and lay it on someone's boo-boo. Okay, we take a dry sterile dressing and do that. Hemostatic dressings are for packing wounds. You're actually gonna take the wound and insert it into the, the, the dressing, insert it into the wound, and insert it into the wound, and pack that wound with this, with this dressing. You want that dressing to be unrolled and in, have as much of it in contact with the patient's plasma and serum. That's what triggers the clotting, okay? So we're either gonna feed it into there, or we're gonna roll it up into a ball and insert it in there. So that's what we're going to use hemostatic dressings for. Bandages are how we fix dressings into place. So the gauze pad is the dressing, the adhesive tape is the bandage, a Band-Aid. The gauze pad is the dressing, the roller gauze is the bandage. There's lots of different bandages out there. There are bandages that are called self-adhering bandages. These are bandages that stick to themselves. Cling and Conform are brand names of roller gauze that are a little stretchy, and when you stretch it, it'll stick to itself. Coban, and you might have seen Coban, um, anyone who has a pet who's had surgery, that sticky bandage that they wrap the leg in or the injury in, and it sticks to itself so it doesn't slide, is Coban. It's stretchy and it's tacky, so it makes a great pressure dressing. Very much like athletic tape. Captain, do you, yeah. do you see you have a question there? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Ms. Okafor. Hello? Hello. Um, my question was in regards to um, the gauze that was mainly used for packing. Um, that would be the hemostatic gauze. Yeah, the hemostatic one. Um, what's the, so when one packs, that's still applying pressure? Yes. Is that what you mean by applying pressure? Is that something? So you're sticking your fingers into that wound. Okay. By adding more gauze to fill it up. Yep. Okay. Cool. There are non-adhering bandages. For instance, cravats. Cravats are linen or cotton type bandages, usually in the shape of a triangle, a triangular bandage. You may be familiar with them from a first aid class. There is some roller gauze that does not stretch and as a result will not adhere. So these are non-adhering style bandages. <clears throat> so
So when you are applying a dressing and adding pressure to it, we call that a pressure dressing. A pressure dressing may sound very sexy. There really isn't a whole lot to it, quite honestly. It's just a gauze pad with some sort of bandage that is elastic that allows you to put pressure. So think in terms of a large gauze pad with an ace wrap. That's a pressure dressing, okay? There are some pressure dressings that come commercially available um, where the bandage has a sleeve and the dressing is sewn into that sleeve and it comes as a single unit. Most of the time, we just make our own using gauze pads, trauma dressings, and then whatever adhering or bandaging materials are appropriate. Okay, so questions about bandaging. So emergency care for these patients, for patients with open wounds. Obviously, if it's bloody, it's nasty, make sure you're wearing your gloves. We're going to be using that acronym, DEPT. We start with direct pressure. You can use your gloved hand first and then get a dressing, throw it on the wound, another gloved hand, put the gloved hand on there. Once you apply a pressure dressing, if it gets saturated, you just add more dressing to it. Once we apply a pressure dressing, we do not remove it to apply a new one. We always just maintain pressure and then add on top of it. Elevate the injury site if it's a, an extremity. Elevate a little bit above the level of the heart is best. If necessary, proximal pressure point to the limb, the femoral artery or the brachial artery in the arm. If you're not able to control the bleeding with direct pressure, then we'll go to a tourniquet. If it's an arterial bleed, we might go to a tourniquet sooner than later. When we're talking about the wound, we're going to clean the wound as necessary. There's nothing that says that wound has to be cleaned in the field. If we are going to clean the wound, we use sterile saline, preferably. You can use tap water, but we're not going to use alcohol or peroxide. Alcohol and peroxide have been shown to damage the tissue, so we're not going to use it, okay? And if that dressing gets saturated, we're just going to add more dressings on top of it and add more bandages. We're not going to take that bandage off. If we're thinking that there's an orthopedic injury underlying that, we'll splint as necessary. Okay. Any questions about that? No. Questions about soft tissue injuries or bleeding? You do have a question here, Captain. 
So Trendelenburg is an option, but we're we're not using it because of the wound. We're using it because of shock. So if you've got a lacerated leg, I'm not putting you in Trendelenburg necessarily. I'll elevate your leg a little bit. I'll maybe put you in low Fowler's. Whatever position's comfortable for you, your arm can be elevated. But Trendelenburg really is something where you're saying their blood pressure is pretty low. Okay. I see Miss LaPierre has her hand up. Yep, go ahead, Miss LaPierre. So I wanted to ask a question about that picture of the um, wound of the gunshot hand, uh, gunshot wound to the hand, okay. and how open it is. Is that a type of wound that you would pack necessarily and then wrap in gauze or how would you dress that? So that that wound is not really so deep enough to pack and the vessels in there aren't going to be large enough to really have that patient warrant that. So what I would probably do is use a a trauma dressing or um, a, a bulky dressing on either side of that wound and just wrap it tightly. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Right. Any other questions? All right. Yes, you do have another question. Okafor, Ms. Okafor, go ahead. Uh, I don't know where she went. There you go. Okay. Um, you know how you said, um, applying alcohol damages the tissue. So is that just for um, soft tissue injuries in general, or I thought putting alcohol is good to disinfect? Alcohol, we, we don't put alcohol on wounds. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Have you ever cut yourself and put alcohol on there? Mm-hmm. How'd it feel? It hurt, but I mean, isn't it the point to disinfect? Like kill any. It's going to damage the tissue. We do not put alcohol on wounds. So, water is fine. We do not put alcohol on wounds. Now, alcohol is a disinfectant. Yes, that's why we wipe intact tissue with alcohol before we give a needle. Okay. Right? Because it disinfects tissue. But if you have an open wound, it's going to damage that open tissue. Okay. So typically then this is this is now a random question. When patients have like an open wound, um, but it's in the healing process, they would just wash it out and like put antibiotics or something, like ointment. We don't do antibiotic ointment. What, what I would do for myself, right? Ow, I have a cut. Mm-hmm. Soapy water, dry, antibiotic ointment, dressing, done. I can't do that to a patient because we're not allowed to put on antibiotics. Okay. Dry, sterile dressing. Do not put alcohol on a wound. If you want to put alcohol on the tissue surrounding the wound, knock yourself out. We're not going to pour alcohol onto a wound. You're looking at me like I'm lying to you. 
No, I mean, I see the movies and all this stuff, too. So that means it's wrong. Oh, wait, she saw it in movies. Because no, she may have even Jenna- seen it on TV. You know where else they see it, Captain? They see it on the internet. And when you see it on TV, movies, and internet, it has got to be right. Yes, I know. I have seen Westerns where they have taken whiskey, poured it on the wound, threw a few back, and did their surgery. I like to think that we have progressed <laughs> a little further than 1852. All these years, okay. So no more sailing. I'm sorry? Now I'm just repeating what she said, so no more sailing. This All right. So listen, if you're at home and you cut yourself and you want to throw alcohol on there, you knock yourself out, girlfriend. But I'm telling you, it is not the standard of care if you're working as an EMT. Does it, um, is it the reason for scarring too? Is what the reason for scarring? Like cuts and stuff, if one uses alcohol? No, not necessarily, but you can damage the tissue and it makes it more difficult to suture. It doesn't heal as well. Okay. Thank you. I live to serve. Other questions? All right. Yes. We're good? Okay. So obviously we have a half an hour left because this was the half an hour that we would have had quiz seven. But since we're not having quiz seven, we're done early. I love you all. Any questions? You do have a question there. Question. I love questions. What's the the topic for Thursday? Burns and musculoskeletal injury. Okay. Thank you. No problem. I'm going to stop sharing for a moment. Any other questions that we need to address? All right. Well, hopefully as we move forward, things will become a little clearer as far as when we can reconvene. uh, Captain. It's just in. Um, with the, the, does, why is aluminum foil an action? Is that uh, something you addressed earlier? We use aluminum foil. An option. Oh, an uh, option. Aluminum foil is used because it keeps the heat in. So it's not required, but it is an option. It helps reduce hypothermia. No, uh, uh, I'm asking because, like, when in what scenario would we ever have that? Is that something that we'd like ask at the patients, like, if we're at the residence or something? Like, I'm assuming no, we don't your, carry your that. Ambulance might have, well, may have aluminum foil on it. Oh, okay. okay. All right. All right. Answer my question. Thank there you. you cool. What else? That's right, Mr. Lou, I see you're asking for tomorrow night. No, we're not doing anything tomorrow night. 
the um, reason he was asking that, Captain, is originally on the schedule that was the makeup, um, but since we can't hold practicals, we can't have makeup practicals. So that's what we're clarifying. Go figure. I'm going to be at home in my jammies drinking alcohol and pouring it on wounds. All right, everybody. Stay safe. We'll see you on Thursday. Quiz 7 will be on. Hey, I got to go for a couple minutes. I'll call you back. Yep. Allergies, abdominal illnesses, toxicology, and environmental illnesses. All right. And we will open at 6.15 or 18.15 for all of those you can tell in the 24-hour clock um, to be here to answer questions. And again, you can log in and log back out. So that way you can ask questions, spend as much quality time with Captain Scarn as you would like. Um, he does love answering your questions. So please come with them, bring them in. And I can see almost all of you now. It's so cute. Some of you have disappeared, but that's okay. Um, only uh, one. Um, the other one doesn't have a camera capability today. Okay. All right, everybody, listen, be safe. And we'll see you on, on uh, Thursday.